Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me as always for the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how are you doing this week? Hello, um, I am uh, well, um, beyond uh, staving off um, what can only be described as a malingering man flu uh, type mm-hmm. episode, um, but I am dealing with it by being as pathetic as possible and complaining about it literally over the day. So my, my voice is a little deeper than normal. But uh, as we've always said, it makes it a little huskier and a lot sexier. Yeah, it makes for great radio, mm. but terrible life. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As uh, as I've discovered this week, because pretty much everyone I work with has been coming down with some form of cold or flu, which isn't great when you're trying to get everything done ahead of a three-day weekend, when mm. suddenly you need to ask someone something. It's like, oh, they are currently wrapped around the toilet of their house crying, mm-hmm. so... Maybe not the best time to ask them for help. Yeah, yeah. But if they could get it on your desk by 10 o'clock tomorrow, that'd be brilliant. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So we'll go on to this week's news, which, as always, starts off with with stories of men being terrible. Mm-hmm. In this case, we had stories coming out against uh, a stunt coordinator on True Lies and many other movies, uh, who um, Elijah Dushku, the, the actor from things like, um, obviously True Lies, but also things like Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, came forward with some incredibly uh, upsetting details about being sexually assaulted by him when she was 12 and he was in his 30s. The five women came forward to accuse James Franco of sexual misconduct and then in the last 24 hours a story came out about Aziz Ansari who uh, a, a woman described going on a date with him earlier this no late last year sort of September of last year in which uh, he seemed to have a very poor grasp of the, the notion of consent and mm. of not being able to read when someone doesn't want to have sex with you. All of which obviously make for um, incredibly grim <laughs> news going and 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 certainly if you are as online as I am all the time, certainly uh, doesn't make existing in the world uh, particularly pleasant. But at the same time, like it's not really that pleasant for women ever. So mm. I think uh, us being a bit uncomfortable by revealing that people we uh, like or admire are, you know, not particularly good people uh, is, is, a, is kind of very little to pay. And mm. certainly the Me Too movement hasn't gone too far, CC Andrew Sullivan. Mm. Yeah, it's been a weird week which kind of began quite positively with mm. uh, to kind of pick up um, from a thread from last week's news, Dan Harmon's response to the allegations made against him on his mm. podcast. I don't know if you listened to it, um, but uh, Megan Gans, who uh, was the writer who actually um, called Harmon out for his behaviour, tweeted sometime last week, please listen to this part of Dan Harmon's podcast. And she wasn't shitposting. It was actually like <laughs> she he um, kind of segued off his normal rambling nonsense that he does on the podcast. A very entertaining rambling nonsense, but um, into a, kind of a long um, discussion well, monologue really about um, what happened, and it was interesting because it could probably be uh, highlighted as how to apologise for something. Mm. Um, he spent like a good deal of time explaining what happened, why it was wrong, why he understood it was wrong, how he 
uh, abused his position in every way, but not in a kind of, I'm just saying this by rote. He was mm-hmm. actually, yeah, had meaning when he said it. There was sincerity there. And then a wholehearted apology came at the end of it whilst talking about the things that he had rationalised from the whole affair. And in terms of it being a good apology, he didn't include a recipe for cinnamon rolls as Mario Batali did in his uh, much derided uh, apology mm. for his own kind of uh, uh, history of sexual misconduct. Mm, nor did he talk about how much he was admired, uh, like Louis C.K. <laughs> did. But what you got at the end of that was Megan Gans offering a note of forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is the only way that we're going to move on through this. But then the week ends with Aziz Ansari's allegation. He's yet to respond to that, I think, at this point. Um, yeah. But what's what's really upsetting about this one is that it isn't a story of of the kind of the Weinstein magnitude in the sense that it's not uh, a long kind of like concerted effort to like oppress people and like abuse them kind of physically and emotionally. It is what a lot of people would probably consider. They would probably read that story and look and think, oh, like, I'm not actually sure this is the same thing. Mm. That's distressing because um, it is a story about the male and female perceptions of consent and notions Mm -hmm. of consent and what the Aziz Ansari story is bringing out is a lot of people saying, I don't really see why this is a problem. Whereas there was far fewer people doing that for the other stories. And the problem is, is, and it's actually, actually a good thing really is that a lot of men are being forced to confront the idea, which is something that is, way too socially acceptable amongst men that yes no means no but no means is not a flexible boundary that needs to be tested repeatedly which is something that like and like people i know and i dare say when i was younger Mm. i probably thought this too that that is a thing that, like, she's playing hard to get, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and and this is something that brings it into the starkest of contrasts. That when you lay it out like this, it is not okay, and there is going to be a lot of men who are forced to defend this position, and hopefully will realise what they're defending is indefensible. Mm. And the amount of women who have come out on Twitter and stuff and said, like, this is so common, like. You know, I lost my virginity in this situation because I felt like I had, like, like occurred a debt of spending time with them. So it was like just disengaging from feeling because, uh, you know, I wasn't raped. Is not what they were saying? They were just saying that I had to like disengage from uh, the idea because they weren't accepting my answer, but they also weren't being awful. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's like it's 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 going to force a lot of people to confront those ideas which is healthy but here we are looking at a terrible story that's uh you know we're looking at the light and at the end of the tunnel and it's quite a long way out yeah and, and you also get that whole thing where a lot of the responses people saying like i was saying oh you know th- this is common or like i've done this this isn't so bad or whatever but there's also the other part of it where people saying well why didn't they leave and it's like there's several points in the story where she's clearly saying that she wants out Mm-hmm. And and he is getting in the way of her. He is trying to either prevent her from leaving, maybe not physically, but certainly through kind of like wheedling or whining about it. In, in particular, in my head, he's doing it in 
the Tom Havisham voice, uh, uh, Tom um, Haverford, Haverford voice um, from Parks and Rec, including some of his actions like pretending to like dry hump her. It's just kind of like Jesus Christ, dude. That's mm. that is very uh, in keeping with a character that I didn't think was you, but yeah. uh, clearly was a little closer to life, which is maybe why you played it so well. Um, mm. And the other thing that's also disappointing about this, and this also ties into like the the, the Louis C.K. thing, although obviously not on the same magnitude because of of what he did. But the the like the thing with Louis C.K. was he so often presented himself as being someone who was a feminist and understood women, and yeah, you know, like he he had that whole thing where he wrote that whole monologue for that 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 actress who talked about being like fat and what it means to be fat, and seem seeming to display a great understanding of and, and uh, empathy for that. And Master of None, as he's on Sorry's show, is all about, you know, particularly the second season is all about empathy and trying to understand the other point of view and things like that. And then it makes you kind of confront the idea of like, oh, was he doing that as a smokescreen? Is it that he is, he just psychologically doesn't really see why, uh, see the difference between how he writes this show and how he acts uh, and, mm-hmm. and kind of, makes you take stock of the people that you think seem like they could be, you know, decent people or supportive of these causes. And the fact that he wore a Time's Up pin at the Golden Globes when he went up and and picked up his Golden Globes for Master of None, Mm -hmm. which was what kind of sparked the the writer of the... Or the, the the woman who came forward with the, the with the story to come forward because of the, the the great gulf between what he was being rewarded for and what he had done in his personal life it kind of brings that hypocrisy into star relief or mm. that dissonance in star relief. Yeah, and it's I mean, there's every chance that like this could just have been something that happened. That it was a one-off, but it's still something that needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. kind of as soon as possible by someone who, like you say, purports to uh, believe in these causes and is not someone whose name I thought would be thrown into this ring. But, you know, here we are. Yep. Yeah, uh, so we briefly mentioned there, but the Golden Globes happened last week, as we were recording, in fact, last week. And uh, so we got a few more sort of indications of how award season is going. In some In some cases, in frightfully boring ways. For example... Gary Oldman winning Best Actor for putting on a suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francis McDormand winning for Three Billboards, which is a movie that I don't particularly like uh, for various reasons, but her performance is very good. But it kind of leaves you worried that it's going to preclude other more interesting performances or more nuanced performances than than that one. Uh, and then, you know, there are obviously stories of snubs, snubs mm-hmm. and flubs, uh, most notably Get Out, the... As we often, as we've talked about, the buzziest and most significant in many ways film of the year, Walking Away, uh, completely empty-handed, and the ploy, if it can be called, that of putting it under best comedy, not paying off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it was uh, a weird night, um, and all of the sound bites came from um, like kind of presenters and stuff, uh, most notably Natalie Portman who uh, mm. kind of uh, stuck the knife in with the best uh, director nominees, but which uh, Ron Howard seemed to find hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure whether it was out of embarrassment or whether he thought she had a point, but if you're, um, can, uh, if you're Greta Gerwig, 
and you've uh, got your best your actor nominated for best actor and your script nominated for best script but yet your film is uh, your film is nominated for best picture and you're not nominated that's mm. kind of got to be galling and uh, yeah it's a uh, an excellent point and I'm glad someone made it yeah the, it, uh, Ron Howard definitely had his uh, Mike Myers Kanye moment of being mm. on stage and just being kind of like, but he handled it better in that he actually reacted as opposed to just standing there and looking terrified. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, yeah, it, it kind of calls back that I think it was Billy Crystal made the joke of like, it must have been the 1990 Oscars when Driving Miss, Miss Daisy was nominated for Best Picture, but the director wasn't. Mm-hmm. And he joked, you know, um, Driving Miss Daisy, which must have directed itself, which mm-hmm. uh, isn't isn't a great joke in general, uh, but also is especially not great for Driving Miss Daisy, which is a movie that could have been directed by just putting a camera in and just going home for the day. Uh, <laughs> it, there's not there's not much in it to suggest authorial, authorial intent. Um, but in the case of, yeah, it does feel, like you say, it feels galling that a movie can receive all of these nominations and then, but the most crucial one in terms of the person who, in this case, originated the movie, but even in, if she hadn't written the movie, you know, she was the one who shaped it and gave it the particular energy and feel and tone that, you know, has won it, you know, kind of fans across the country and has, has made it a, a critical and a commercial success. Mm, yeah. Uh, so do you think out of all of the uh, winners of the Golden Globes, Oldmund and McDormand are the ones who were kind of nailed on for the Oscars? I think they're nailed on for nominations. The mm-hmm. problem, because like the, the whole thing is like people try and use all the different awards that uh, come before the Oscars as some sort of like, uh, you know, kind of reading the entrails to try and figure out what's going to win. And the, the problem there with Golden Globes is the Golden Globes are decided by the 93 or 96 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association who basically don't really belong to any of the other guilds. So mm-hmm. they're really just looking at... They're, they're useful as a snapshot of, like, they're clearly looking at what everyone else has been nominating and they're going, okay, we'll nominate them as well. But if you're looking for who's got a better chance of winning, then when we start getting all of, like, the DGA and the WGA and all those awards coming in, because there's such a huge overlap between who belongs to the guilds and who belongs to the academy, that's when we'll probably start to see... Get a better sense of who's likely to win. But uh, those two definitely seem like uh, it would be a huge upset if they didn't end up being nominated. Mm. Which, in the case of Oldman, who is someone who I generally like and has obviously done a lot of great performances over the year, but the idea of him winning his Oscar for what feels like the easiest possible choice uh, seems uh, a little bit disappointing. Mm, yeah, I mean, I've seen that video of him dancing in costume as Winston Churchill to James Brown, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like I don't need to watch the movie. <laughs> I feel like nothing could be better than that. No. Was it in any way like the scene in WE where Andrea Riceborough dances to the Sex Pistols, but doing the Charleston? Um, I ha- Is that the Madonna movie? Yeah, it's the Madonna oh. movie. <laughs> Oh man, I I think maybe part of my fifty-two films by women should involve seeing that. It's uh, it's pretty bad. It's a very mm. very bad movie, and that is uh, among the worst moments in it in terms of trying to make a very confusing point about why, about why this 
possible Nazi uh, is punk. <laughs> uh, and kind of taking, rather than engaging with the various strange associations that Wallace Simpson had over the course of her life, instead following the idea of like, I was also vilified by the British press, so I feel a real kinship with this <laughs> with this person. Because mm. I married Guy Ritchie, very much the Edward the Eighth of his day. The shit mockney gangster movies. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah. Hey, speaking of um, Guy Ritchie, segue. Mm. Guy, Guy Ritchie, who is currently directing the live-action Aladdin movie. Yes, um, obviously. Uh, yes, they made the news this week because they were browning up extras. Mm. Did you see that? I did see that. It That is... Uh, Terrible and deeply unfortunate. Uh, yeah. But also, when you kind of say, like, Guy Ritchie's doing something about me, something in the back of my head, it's like, yeah, that probably, that tracks. Considering mm. that the uh, advertising for his King Arthur movie at one point had, like, a a, a sheet, a, a, a poster that was quickly scrapped because it was put online and everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing? Where mm-hmm. it had the entire lineup of Arthur's kind of gang and one of them was a... Uh, I think Chinese character called Kung Fu George, who... <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That is exact. That is totally true. You can find it online if you look for the original character sheet for... <laughs> for um, right, for I'm Googling King Kung Fu George right now. Legend of the Sword, which on one level feels like it's in keeping with the way that all his characters are always named, but has a unfor- deeply unfortunate strain of Orient- Orientalism to it. Oh God, you, you're not joking. <laughs> oh yeah. So it's, the poster says the gangs all here, mm-hmm. and the gangs' names include uh, Sabedavir, which probably sounds legit. Then yeah. Goosefat Bill, mm-hmm. uh, Wetstick, and Kung Fu George. Mm-hmm. All uh, all terrible names, but that one in particular. Yeah, that that was why the poster debuted, and then. Uh, folded i don't know what the term is for getting rid of a poster within seemingly within about an hour and a half mm, i mean you can literally fold a poster yes so, yeah maybe that's the it. It, got, it got rolled up it got yes. un- taken down and rolled up put into that tube and yeah forgotten about i yeah i'm horrified about that but going back to the aladdin <laughs> thing like i'm just gonna put this out there and i'm not trying to be controversial but i bet they've done that shit since day fucking one of making movies Mm. Um, and I think that that was probably going on like the you know uh, any movie that's set vaguely anywhere exotic that is exactly what's been happening and um, yes I'm glad that it's come up because Disney were under such pressure to cast uh, Middle Eastern actors mm-hmm. in this because they were and you know we have a whole problem with whitewashing shit and I'm really glad that's happened and now that's going to extend to extras and it's fucking brilliant because it means that they can't just, they cannot just get away with it. But you know what it'll lead to? Because movie producers are such, so like morally like vacuous and tight ass with their money. They're just mm-hmm. going to CGI extras in. Yes. Yeah. That is all that's going to happen. They will hire five actors of Middle Eastern descent and then just mm-hmm. like copy paste them like a cheap video game. Like will do for its uh, crowd where it'll be the same models, but with different outfits a thousand mm. times. It's something that, like, I noticed last year when I rewatched the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a really bad bit in it when they're in Tibet mm-hmm. and they are having that fight in the in uh, Marion's bar. Yeah. And 
or of all the goons that like the Nazi guy brings with him, like there's there's a couple of close ups where you can see it's just a white dude in like yellow face and they've like right. actually done the eyes. And oh. like now I've seen it, I cannot unsee it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's all of those. Definitely one guy, and it's so bad. And, yeah, someone needs to go. I'll, I'm, I'll happily approve going back through the archives and digitally changing that. Yeah, uh, the the worst example I've ever seen of that, and it's not an extra, it was a, a main actor. Have you ever seen David Lean's adaptation of A Passage to India? Uh, I have not. Okay. I'm surprised this movie doesn't get talked about more, because... Uh, Alec Guinness is in that movie, as he is in many David Lean movies, and he plays an Indian character, Mm -hmm. and he is in brownface for the entirety of the movie. Right. And doing a kind of borderline offensive accent. Like, the accent itself is not as, it's not like a poo, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. like a really kind of strong accent, but it's just enough, and that when you combine it with the fact that he is in brownface for the entirety of it, that makes you just think... I can't. I honestly can't believe this was done in the eighties. Like mm. it would be bad enough to do it most of the time. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, if it was done in like the fifties, when I can't remember what movie it is, but there is a movie where Alec Guinness plays a Chinese person who is made up with the eyes and everything, and it's deeply horrible. <laughs> yeah, Alec, Alec Guinness, wonderful actor, deeply beloved, part of the Star Wars mythos, mm. but some very questionable choices on his CV. Uh, if it had been done in the 50s, you'd be thinking, okay, that's not right, but I can see why they did it then. Mm-hmm. But you get to the 80s, it's like, we were, we were used to seeing people of different ethnicities in big movies at that point, and you didn't struggle to find Indian actors to fill in the other roles. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could have found an old white character that Alec Guinness could have played. Mm. And it's weird that, like, in you know, a few generations' time, we'll sit down and tell our kids, like, hey, there was his actor, he was considered great, his name was Anthony Quinn, um, and he <laughs> never played a white dude. He was white, mm. but, you know, if they, if they needed, like, a Moroccan guy or, like, an old Italian guy or, like, you know, an Algerian dude, fuck it, let's get Anthony Quinn. We'll brown him <laughs> up a little bit and he'll play it. And, you know, the kids won't believe us. But, you know, it just... Yeah, Hollywood will never cease to amaze me at how they will uh, not tread lightly on racial sensitivities. Yes. In happier news, and this is just kind of, this is very much an and finally piece in those, mm-hmm. just a nice human interest story. A duck uh, on a skateboard. <laughs> the duck is racist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the uh, skateboard's on fire and it's a cross and it's in your garden. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> There was a, a story that was uh, tweeted out by uh, Chris Evangelista, who uh, is a writer for, I believe, Slash Film. Uh, he just posted a tweet saying, they're still good in the world, or they're still good news. And it was uh, two tweet, two uh, pictures. One was a tweet from David Harbour, where someone was asking him, David Harbour, of Stranger Things, amongst other things, uh, saying, um, someone asking him, you know, how many tweet retweets until you will appear in my senior picture. And he said, 25,000, but I get to wear the school jersey and uh, hold a trombone. And then that tweet got about 26,000 retweets. So this week, a professional photographer took the pictures of David Harbour and this teenage girl where he was wearing the shirt for her school and posing it with a trombone. Uh, 
And it's delightful, and David Harbour seems like a really, really wonderful dude. He certainly does, and um, it, he is the hero we need right now. He mm. is the, the sheriff slash father figure we all need in our lives right now to um, hold a uh, small 15-year-old girl essentially hostage in a cabin in the woods. Sorry, <laughs> you haven't seen se- season two of Stranger Things yet, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I've got some bad news for you. Oh, dear. Yeah. It's well, fine. I'm joking. Okay. Uh, and and genuinely, I'm finally because it leads into our main topic. Uh, there was a, a, I mean, this entire story kind of came up and resolved itself within the time between our two episodes. But uh, in the week, it was revealed that Mark Wahlberg, um, Sterling Thespian that he is, mm-hmm. uh, had agreed to do the reshoots for All the Money in the World, in which they replaced Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer for a cool 1.5 million dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what his his agents uh, demanded and got in order for the reshoots to take place. While his co-star Michelle Williams agreed to do the reshoots for a thousand dollars, while the rest of her money got donated to uh, ca- uh, the rest of the money that she would have been given got donated to kind of charitable causes. Uh, which in and of itself, that's kind of like, I mean, people have been talking about it as like a pay disparity thing, whereas it's more just of a. Mark Wahlberg is unscrupulous thing. Uh, it's a greed disparity is what it is. Yes. Whereas, but then uh, at the end of the week, Mark Wahlberg and his agency announced they would be giving all of the salary that he received from that and uh, an additional $500,000 to the Me Too movement, uh, which is the best possible outcome from that situation in that you know, it went to a good cause and uh, it meant that we didn't have to live in a world in which uh, Michelle Williams, who is... I would say roughly 150,000 times better than Mark Wahlberg at the whole acting thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't getting paid 150,000th of what he got paid. I think my mm. math may be slightly off there, but you, you get the point. Yeah, I get the point. And it also brought out, this This story brought out, obviously, um, Mark Wahlberg is someone with a few skeletons in the closet, should we say. <laughs> yeah. um, notably, racially aggravated assault, for which he was... Uh, Imprisoned? Was he imprisoned for that? Uh, definitely, at least, probably did community service. I mean, it's Boston, so <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's just a coming of age. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he um, was revealed to have like pretty much held the the um, the makers of Entourage to to ransom for 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 more money, mm. and um, it you know is a disturbing pattern of behaviour. And I'm pretty glad that he got called out on it. Um, I think Michelle Williams had said to the makers. I will do this for scale, which is the, uh, as uh, people who know about uh, acting unions will know, is the, the minimum compensation that an actor must be paid for a job and you can't avoid paying an actor scale uh, if you're making a union production. She agreed to do it for that because she was just so pleased that someone was taking action mm. over Kevin Spacey and what that message sent um, if you did that. And Mark Wahlberg was just like, fucking pay me, man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want that paper. Uh, yeah. This this film is not called Some of the Money in the World. <laughs> it's called, you know, All of the Money in the World. And I want it for coming and uh, looking bored whilst I read through my lines. Yeah, I think in his mind, it's like it would be a dishonour to the memory of the Getty family if mm-hmm. I didn't demand $1.5 million for like a week, two weeks' work. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's a tough gig if you can get it. Mm. Now, I just mentioned Michelle Williams, and I think there's a very strong case to be made that she is one of the best actresses of her generation and certainly one of the best actors working currently in the movie industry. And that's going to be our topic 
for this week's episode, we're going to talk about the people who we think are among the best actors working today. Now, before we get into this, I think it's probably important to just kind of have a few caveats. This is obviously kind of personal list. I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of every actor working today. Also, my list in particular is very heavily focused on English language actors, mainly because I don't watch as many kind of like French films as I would like or Italian films as I was like. So I can't have a, a good grasp of who the best actors from France are at the moment. And also, I always feel weird trying to judge if an actor is doing a good performance in a different language, in a language I don't speak. Mm-hmm. Because all you could say is like, well, they seem to be putting a lot of effort in. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're doing good line, line readings because I don't know, you know, the language. I can just kind of guess. Whereas with English language actors, just because I am English and I understand, understand the language, I always feel like I have a better grasp of that. Yeah, that's a fair caveat. I accept. Uh, I do not accept you not having an encyclopedic knowledge of all actors. <laughs> what the fuck are you on the show for? I'm sorry. It's it's merely Wikipedia level of knowledge. I can just yeah. kind of like name a bunch of actors and some of their credits, but mm. there are, there will be citations. Yeah, good. Uh, I'm going to start off with the actress who inspired this uh, topic because uh, I just rewatched Paddington the first Paddington ahead of the sequel, and she is very much in the conversation for the Oscars this year for Best Actress. It is uh, Sally Hawkins, who is someone who I really do think is one of the most just captivating screen presences out there at the moment. And and she, you know, there's lots of different criteria for determining whether someone is one of the best currently working. And I think for me, one is a, they're just really good. That mm-hmm. helps. But also I think a big part of it is range. If someone is able to do a lot of different things and there is, I can think very few different roles than the performance she gives in Paddington, where she is like pretty much the ultimate film mum, And she's like, just really kind of like big hearted and uh, supportive to the point of being difficult to her family and a problem. And the performance she gives in Shape of Water, where she is also kind of a, a really loving person, but she is someone who, you know, she is mute. She doesn't speak in the movie. So it's a, it's a very physical performance, whereas which requires her to exercise a lot of skills, a skill set that she utilises a little bit in something like Paddington or Blue Jasmine, for which she was nominated for an Oscar. But, mm. no, but it requires her to kind of exercise it in a vastly different way. Yeah. Um, and like you say, she has done uh, an awful lot. And she's one of those British actors now that you will, you will accept in anything. Mm. which is, you know, I think that's the official seal of approval of being an English actor you can accept in anything. They'll turn up in a Harry Potter, they'll turn up in a Hollywood movie, they'll turn up in a Mike Lee movie, Mm -hmm. um, and you're like, oh, okay, this is totally normal. Um, I think first saw her in Eve Happy Go Lucky, was that the one she, big breakthrough? Yeah. And she's such a kind of winsome presence. In that, and pretty much everything else I've seen her in, I I do think she is the defining um, kind of like modern movie mum in Paddington, mm. um, which is all the more upsetting because Hugh Bonneville is punching way above his weight. <laughs> and as much as I don't want to break up the Brown family, mm. um, you know she's you know she's too good for him. Mm. Yeah, and she is uh, as as much as I do enjoy him, she also gets I think a lot of the funnier lines. Mm. she's just altogether a more funny presence in particular at the end of the first Paddington when 
her daughter is preparing to introduce her to the boy that she's seeing. And she's listing all the rules. And he's like, you know, uh, you can't touch him. He's like, I won't touch anyone. And you're not going to cry. He says, I'm not going to cry. It's just a lot is happening in my heart right now. It's <laughs> just mm. kind of like, she just tosses it off in such a kind of like wonderfully heartfelt way that's also just super funny. Mm. She's also um, the inside scoop here. She is, um, her character in Paddington uh, and subsequently in Paddington 2 is my wife's style icon. Um, right. My wife dresses exactly like Sally Hawkins in Paddington and she oh. explicitly says that's what I'm going for. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, she'll also like, you know, she'll turn up in Godzilla. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And looking here, she's coming back for the sequel. Maybe yeah, she, she fights will. Godzilla dressed in very, very cool, like, vintage threads. That's what I'm hoping for, that we get a radioactive, 70-foot-tall <laughs> Sally Hawkins. I, I think that's also a good sign that someone is a really great actor, is when you see them in a movie and you walk away disappointed that they didn't get to do more. Because mm. in Godzilla, she's just kind of one of a group of scientists. Like, she's hanging out with Ken Watanabe, uh, who's also a great actor, but she she doesn't exactly she's not exactly the focus of the movie. It mainly goes to Aaron Taylor Johnson, who is not the most dynamic presence on screen. But you know, whenever she's on screen, it's like, oh, I hope she gets to do something good in this scene, and constantly let down by that. But I, I feel like that's a sign of how much I've come to expect from her. And also in terms of you know, kind of different kinds of roles, I think there's it's so interesting comparing her in Paddington to her in like Submarine the mm. uh, wonderful Richard A. Awadi movie where she is also kind of a, a mother who is, like, loves her son, but also is like, a lot less demonstrative and is in a much sadder place in her life than, than Mrs. Brown. And I think uh, the way in which she makes both of those characters really feel like rich characters within her lives, and particularly in Paddington, where, you know, the, the bar for characters in children's movies is so low particularly live action one because it's kind of a, an art that's very much lost at this point the the fact that she uh exceeds that low level so much and brings so much to it is a real sign of just how dedicated she is to the craft and how she brings so much of herself to every role that she does mm. um and uh trivia fan, fans amongst you will appreciate the following two tidbits that i have i have painstakingly researched in the last five minutes on wikipedia mm-hmm. but um sally hawkins was a uncredited extra on star wars episode one the phantom menace yes i saw that um, earlier and she was also in um charlie kaufman's television pilot called how and why co-starring alongside john hawks and michael Sarah, and it wasn't picked up that probably sounds, sounds like the greatest tv show of all time yeah, I was going to say, but probably for obvious reasons, which is that it's a Charlie Kaufman TV show, and I can't imagine that's going to have wide, uh, wide appeal to the like eighteen to thirty-five demographics. Mm, yeah, do you think that someone like Sally Hawkins is too esoteric to kind of cross over to be a Hollywood type leading lady? I think that is is definitely the case i think she is she's a very striking woman like she is she's very pretty but she's not kind of like classic hollywood pretty Mm -hmm. so it's hard to kind of like hammer her into the the various kind of roles that the the limited handful of roles that women are allowed to do in movies that make money nowadays Mm -hmm. but also i think she her career has also been helped by the fact that i think she broke through quote unquote later in life uh, mm-hmm. Like she was, thir- she was in her thirties when uh, Happy Go Lucky kind of 
really kind of broke through. So she wasn't exactly, you know, June Squibb kind of mm-hmm. getting an Oscar nomination in her 80s or whatever. But, you know, that that's the point at which Hollywood loses interest. But I think the fact that she broke through then and it means that she is kind of primed for much more interesting roles. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I am going to chuck out a nomination for this uh, uh, thing, uh, this this award that we're just making up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Adam Driver. Um, he was on my list. Yeah, I think that he kind of has a great career at the moment in the sense that he is a truly unique presence on the screen, whether it's a indie movie or whether it's the Star Wars movie and he's playing the villain. Mm. Um, because he's not just playing the villain in the Star Wars movie, he is doing interesting shirtless work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the widest I... actor working today. I think <laughs> yeah, he is wide. He is very wide. He's got that um, former Marine body. He has, yeah. I was absolutely stunned to find that he was an ex-US Marine until I saw his... I want to say it was a TED Talk, but I don't think it was. Because he works for... He has either has a charity or he works for a charity which essentially tries to counsel veterans through PTSD mm. using the arts. Yes, he does. And I think I saw him do a talk about it and it was pretty kind of inspiring stuff because he was... He kind of said he had, I can't remember what you called it now, it's something like the guilt of not serving because mm. he had he'd been like a reservist or whatever. He was in the Marines and he was like ready to go to war, but he was medically discharged because he couldn't serve. They had something, I don't know what was wrong with him. And he felt terrible that he had, all his friends were going off to serve and he couldn't. So this mm-hmm. was his way of kind of serving. And yeah. it was very interesting. This is beside the point. Um, but he kind of turns out to be an all-round good guy. Uh, as well as um, someone who's doing incredibly interesting work. And I think that that is the ultimate test of whether an actor is great or not, whether they can do stuff that you could happily rewatch again and again and again and again because it's um, you love it and you love them in it, but also stuff that challenges you um, and also they're not afraid to challenge their own star persona, I guess. Yeah, and his body of work so far, considering... <laughs> his shirtless body of work. <laughs> um, considering, like, when did Girls debut? Like, 2010, 2009? Feels like so, it, yeah. 12, yeah. 2012. Wow, that's even less. But, like, mm. considering he's only really been on the scene in a major way for, like, five or six years, it's amazing how different all of the stuff he's done is, you know? Like, obviously, uh, he was... Uh, as Adam in Girls, he was, you know a very difficult, often unlikable, sexually aggressive figure. Uh, that's certainly that character's choices in the early seasons play very differently now to how they do back then. And even back then, I think a lot of people were like, ooh, this feels weird. But like he was a, like a very dark and, and brooding and, and broken figure. And then you see him in something like Patterson, the Jim John Moose movie, which is where he's very restrained, very kind of internal, a guy who doesn't, do a huge amount. He kind of walks around, he writes poetry, he drives his bus, but he, he makes those things feel really captivating. And I think it's, it's indisputable in my eyes that he is giving the best performance that has been in any of the Star Wars movies as Kylo Ren. Mm-hmm. Um, where he's playing this really interesting idea of villainy, of essentially like a toxic fanboy of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
being the if only there was stuff to draw on for that Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and particularly in The Last Jedi, the way in which he explores the relationship that he has with with Rey via their kind of Skype calls uh, that they have across the galaxy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I rewatched the movie today, and he is it's amazing how he can he does all of that sort of stuff. How he really gives life to this character that on that played badly could just be like a complete flop and doom the movie but he is you know a villain who is compelling and interesting but also you know there's enough of a a sense of reality to him in what he represents in the culture now that Mm. makes you think oh yeah no there is something really dangerous and unsettling and volatile about this guy Mm. and it's a testament to how good you are as to like who wants to work with you Mm. And I mean, just looking down his filmography, I'm seeing Noah Baumbach obviously a few times, uh, Spielberg, yeah. the Coen Brothers, uh, Jeff Nichols, Jim Jarmusch, Martin Scorsese, Steven Soderbergh, Terry Gilliam, yeah. Spike Lee. Like those guys don't come knocking if you ain't got nothing. Mm. Yeah, uh, his performance in Logan, Lucky from last year, the Soderbergh movie he did last year, is also a really fascinating contrast to kylo ren because that is a character who is so kind of laconic and beaten down down by life and so powerless you know a former soldier who's lost his hand and now runs kind of a rinky dink bar in a dying part of the country mm-hmm. who just has nothing really going for him but who and who is like greatly skeptical about the hijinks that his brother wants to drag him into but is so wryly funny with it and then you compare that to like him uh, delivering something, one of my favourite line readings of the last 12 months when he shouts, blow that piece of junk out of the sky! <laughs> uh, with such conviction and such hatred. Uh, mm. It's it's really, it's it's almost hard to credit that it's the same guy. Yeah, and it's also like, it didn't, it didn't land with me the first time um, when he says that. The first time I kind of laughed because I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, Oh shit! That is a literal icon of everything he hates in himself and mm-hmm. everyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh yeah, okay." I'm not sure many other people could have sold that as well. Yeah, my next one uh, is someone who works, I think, more generally in TV, but also she does a lot of work on in uh, indie movies. Uh, Alia Shawcat, who is most known, I think, to most people as uh, maybe in Arrested Development. That was certainly kind of her breakthrough role but over the last couple of years particularly her work on the tbs show search party uh and also her work in movies for people like kelly reichardt briefly on things like uh, broad city she's someone who's really developed this incredibly diverse uh body of work where she embodies i think because um she exists in a really interesting space in america as someone who i believe is of iraqi origin who I think she brings a lot of different cultural experiences to her work that a lot of similar actors probably couldn't. And uh, she is someone who is able to be incredibly funny. Like she is hilarious on Arrested Development and also in in Search Party as well. But she can also just, in Search Party, particularly the second season, she's someone who's racked by paranoia and uncertainty and fear and guilt and the fact that she can sell all of these really negative emo- emotions whilst also being really, really funny uh, is is really fascinating to me. 
is um is she has she got the range or like and are we going to be allowed to see it or is she going to fall into the the kind of she's a a, a TV comic actress um ghetto as it were because that's very tough to break out of I think she she seems to me like someone who could probably just do TV forever, but she could do lots of different kinds of TV. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different shows that you can be on now. Like she could be in something like, like I keep talking about Search Party, which is like has a very specific style and tone where it's trying to be sort of, sort of a, a contemporary noir, but about kind of feckless millennials who don't realise what trouble they're in. But she also could be in something like completely like huge and zany like she does uh like voices on television like for adventure time or big mouth uh and they all feel they all feel kind of real and like she's able to she you know she hasn't allowed herself to be just pinned into just do the maybe uh fumke thing over and over again in the same way in the way that like her co-star michael sarah did uh mm. over Oh, certainly over the like the the first ten years of his career, he's tried to play with it a bit more recently. But like, there was a very it, it only took him like two movies to establish like, oh yeah, that's the Michael Sarah type. Mm, yeah, get me Jesse Eisenberg. Um, yeah, she was really good in Green Room. Uh, yes, from a couple of years ago. Um, but I mean, looking down her CV now, it's such a shame that she gets thrust into so many kind of like best friend roles. Mm. Um, I've seen her kind of pop up in those in some very average comedies. And I think that's the mark of someone who's amazing is that they're always good, even in bad stuff. But it's such a shame to see her uh, kind of backed into, painted into that corner. Mm. But at the same time, that sometimes in those kind of movies, that's where the more fun work is like. If you are, a, you know, someone who plays this role so often that they made like a short, a comedy short entirely about it, like Judy Greer, mm-hmm. like Judy Greer has done that for her entire career. And that's, that's, I think for a lot of, uh, you know, also an Arrested Development alumnus, I think the fact that she is so distinctive in those roles, uh, certainly more so than she is as a mum that you see very briefly in movies like Jurassic World, um, that she uh you know that that is in itself kind of an interesting body of work and i think uh it would be great if she could become kind of a marquee name or at the very least someone who like an adam driver like big name directors want to work with her and build movies around her mm-hmm. but i think that she is so great in the little roles that she she gets that even if you know those big roles don't end up coming for her she could still be one of like the best actors working today because even with those little worlds roles like Sally Hawkins, she <clears throat> commits to everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of someone who commits to everything, I would like to throw the name of Paul Dano into the ring. Okay, who is someone who a few years ago seemed to be ubiquitous, um, and then perhaps slid away from our screens. But he, I think he is someone who has a unique screen energy mm-hmm. but at the same time does a wild variety of roles we i think i talked about it um a while ago when i recommended um 
uh, Love and Mercy, the uh, the Beach Boys movie, the Brian Wilson movie. Yes. Um, but that was spurred off the fact that I watched Swiss Army Man, um, a film <laughs> in which he gamefully commits to um, riding a, a flatulent corpse like a speedboat. Mm. Yeah. Um, and whilst watching that, and I think I talked about this when I recommended it, there's not many actors who can pull that off. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not one of those ones that, you know, you would get given as a standard audition piece. Hmm. Yeah. Although maybe, maybe we would get more interesting movies if it was. If they just said, okay, just now, well, you to straddle this table and uh, <laughs> pretend it's a corpse speeding across the ocean and go. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, he is, he is fantastic. He is also someone who, like, I don't want to keep ragging on Michael Sarah, who I actually do like a lot, <laughs> but... Um, he is someone who I think after Little Miss Sunshine, which was kind of his breakout role, he could have just been kind of like the sad sack guy in indie comedies for his whole life. Mm-hmm. And he has done that from time to time. He's kind of that in that movie, Ruby Sparks. Yeah. Um, but then you think like the year after he did... Little Miss Sunshine. It's crazy to think that these movies came out within like an 18 month span of each other. He was Eli Sunday in There'll Be Blood, mm-hmm. which could not be a more different and more revelatory performance than the one he gives in Little Miss Sunshine, where he is every bit the equal of Daniel Day Lewis uh, in terms of uh, being the force, the part of the engine that drives that movie, you know, their conflict. And uh, he so understands what Paul Thomas Anderson is going for in that when you see him doing the whole baptism scene, which is this real fun conflict of worlds between these two guys. Well, on one level, it's this dark thing about, you know, capitalism and religion and the devil's bargain that they're going to form that will corrupt the world. But also it's just this really funny thing where he's just like saying, I've abandoned my boy. <laughs> he's just kind of like, <laughs> they're both doing these kind of like huge performances that are kind of slightly funny. Uh, and that's a, that's not something that everyone could do. And it's certainly not something that anyone could do being kind of thrust into the role because the other guy, the guy who was meant to be doing that role couldn't hack it mm-hmm. because originally he was just meant to be playing the other brother that tells him that there's oil, tells Daniel Plainville that there's oil. Mm-hmm. And then the other actor playing Eli Sunday backed out and they gave it to him at the last minute. Uh, which is crazy considering how integral he is to that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He is someone who has very limited leading man appeal mm. in big movies, um, but that is absolutely fine by me because that's where he's not going to... He's going to be completely wasted in those kind of roles. Yeah, and he is someone who I think can fit into a surprisingly right, wide range of of smaller roles, if you look at... I don't know if you saw um, Okja, the Bong Joon-ho movie, but he has a kind of fairly significant role in that movie where he's almost playing a subversion of the typical Paul Dano character. Because you think, because of this guy being this kind of radical environmentalist and you just inherently mistrust his intentions because he's played by Paul Dano, but he's such a nice, likeable, friendly guy that you end up being kind of like won over by him, but also still feel slightly suspicious about him. Mm. Uh, and it's really interesting to see him play with his persona and get to affect something, a, a kind of a more heroic stance. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's maybe something is you could say about Paul Dano. He's got a face and an energy that you can never really trust. Yes, absolutely. In all films. Um, so, yeah, um, if he turns up as a good guy, yeah, don't don't uh, put too much stock in him. Mm. Uh, my next, uh, not nominational choice, I guess choice, my next choice is someone who uh, has kind of only really kind of emerged in the last got two or three years, but the whole idea with this is it's not necessarily about people who have been around for a long time. It's very much about people who are, like, having a moment. Uh, and it is, I would definitely say that describes this guy, it is Lakeith Stanfield, mm. who uh, is in, in terms of kind of Oscar movies, he's in Get Out, which shouldn't be an Oscar movie. Yeah. Um, the kind of movie, it sh- absolutely should be, because it's great. I'm saying it's not the sort of movie that you would ever assume would you know be the force that it is uh, mm-hmm. which is obviously great but um he's amazing in get out we, we talked about this last week i think or maybe two weeks ago uh in our yeah it was in our, our end of year thing the fact that he's giving such a, a layered performance you know you see him as his normal self at the beginning of the movie and then like part way through you see him at the party and he does such a good job of suggesting the different levels of persona that he has in mm-hmm. that in that scene, um, and he he kind of becomes the heart of the movie at that point because you do see the effects of what is going on. It's so hard to talk about this movie without seeing what yeah. happens in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he does he does suggest different levels of of kind of existence and reality, like beautifully in the handful of scenes that he has. Uh, he's hilarious on Atlanta. Um, he's really, really great in Short Term 12, which is what I first saw him in. Uh, he's pretty good in Straight Outta Compton, although he doesn't have a huge amount in it. Um, he doesn't look a lot like Snoop Dogg. No, yeah. he He's not of the, like, um, uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. thing, where it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's pretty much perfect casting because he's playing his dad. But, uh, yeah, he, he I think he gives a lot of the energy Mm-hmm. He has a lot of the energy right of Snoop. Yeah. Um, he's certainly better than the guy they got to play two back. <laughs> I, I remember being kind of a distracting, uh, distractingly kind of weak choice. But uh, like like other people we've said um, so far, like the, the defining thing about him is he's just so compelling in every role he picks. And, and he is the one who I'm just really excited to see what else he does going forward. You know, we talked about uh, him being in Sorry to Bother You, which sounds like a really interesting movie he's going to be in. The Girl in the Spider's Web, which is the new uh, Lisbeth Salander movie, which I'm not overly keen on because I didn't particularly like the David Fincher version. I don't think there's been a any really good versions of that story told, but uh, I'm excited to see him get a swing at something that's kind of big and aimed at a huge audience. Hmm. Nothing like the exposure is going to be good for someone like him whose CV has been the smaller parts in smaller movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in uh, War Machine, which is a pretty bad film, uh, the Netflix movie with uh, Brad Pitt. Um, but, you know, I remember him from it. I remember his small part in it amongst all the other grunts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he stands out. He's he's definitely got something. I am kind of very excited to see where he goes. And I really hope he does break through in something. And sorry to bother you, looks like... Uh, he's the lead in that, and we we picked it out as one of our films to look for this year. 
Um, yeah. I hope it comes out. I hope it doesn't great Gatsby. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, that's going to be the, the kind of the litmus uh, test, uh, isn't it? Really, whether he can carry a movie, whether it's a smaller movie or a, or a bigger movie, um, because he's certainly got the chops. Apparently, he was very good in the remake of Death Note, where he mm. plays. No, uh, it's kind of. I guess the antagonist. He's not really the villain because the villain of the movie is the hero, right? <laughs> the guy, the guy who's like killing people. But um, the guy who's kind of trying to track him down. Apparently, he was very good in that role. Uh, and I remember even when it was announced, everyone was saying like, "Oh, that's like a perfect choice." Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in. Um, is it the Inc- uh, Incredible Jessica James? Yes. Which you recommended to me, which was a lot of fun. He's in yeah. that. Um, he's good in that. He's just, he's just like kind of running up a CV of stuff he's really good in, and you just want something to let him be great. Mm. Um, yeah, which, absolutely. Yeah, you know, this is what we're looking for with uh, with uh, that film he's in this year. Um, I'm going to throw what might be a slightly obvious contender into the ring, but every time I see it, like I'm more and more impressed by it. Is Brie Larson, um, yes. who is obviously a decorated actor, she won best actress last year or year before uh, yeah. for her performance in Tommy Wiseau's The Room. <laughs> yeah. um, she is someone who I keep seeing and always forget that she's someone who won an Oscar for Best best Actress. Mm. Um, but she is kind of a, a magnetic personality. Uh, she was really great in Free Fire, playing a kind of a pretty unlikable person in a room full of unlikable people shooting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in uh, something like Kong Skull Island, which when I saw her in the trailer, I was like, ugh, you know, this is going to be a thankless hour and a half for her. You know, she owned that. I'm very excited to see her in Captain Marvel. Yes. Uh, a super, and this is, this is the, the, you know, another mark of a really good actor is that I don't know anything about Captain Marvel. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'm going to go and see it because it's a Marvel movie at the cinema. Um, but, the casting of her makes me actually interested to see it rather than I'm just going to see it because it's a Marvel movie and it'll probably be good. Yeah, absolutely. I think there it's not necessarily drawing power. Like, no one is banking on her sizable fan base being the thing that propels Captain Marvel to kind of, like, the stratospheric heights of, I don't know, Civil War or whatever. Mm-hmm. But her being cast in something instantly makes it more interesting. I think that is a real good sign that someone is, you know, kind of one of the, the premier actors of, of their day is that being cast in something instantly makes you think, okay, I want to see that movie now, like at least like 37% more than if someone else had been cast in that role. And her, the work that she's done so far to date, uh, has all been pretty fantastic. She's also really great in Short Term 12, uh, funnily enough. Uh, that's a movie with a, a shockingly uh, great cast of people who would go on to, to be like successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, also has Stephanie Beatrix from uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, like I don't... It, uh, another sign that someone's a great actor is like you can legitimately say about them, I don't think I've ever seen them be bad in anything. And she is someone who seems to be hungry to do good work or to take material that's maybe not the sharpest, like is in Kung, uh, is in uh, Kong Island, mm-hmm. uh, Kong Skull Island. Yeah. And, you know, like that's a film that I don't particularly like, but like she she absolutely tries her best with, 
you know, material that is very clearly written as, okay, these are the linking scenes between Kong fighting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she manages not to be the... And this, I'm pretty sure pretty sure this comes all from her um, because she's not interested in it, uh, I can imagine. Mm. She's not going to be the damsel in distress, the uh, the female lead who is, you know, eighth build and doesn't do anything interesting. Um, you get the impression from her that if you hire her, you're going to get something. You know what I mean? It's, she's not just going to stick for it. She, she won't take anything, which is why I was surprised to see her turn up in Kong Skull Island. And then I was just like, oh, okay, I get it. Like, you know, she's elevated this beyond what it probably was on the page. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my next pick is going to be... Uh, I think I'm going to go for Ben Mendelsohn, who hey. is yeah. uh, an electrifying presence in pretty much everything that he's in. I think he uh, is on the... maybe on the precipice of doing too many villains. Um <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that he's going to be playing the Sheriff of Nottingham, which I think is very much the point at which someone has played too many villains. That's Peak uh, Mendelssohn. Yes. Uh, but uh, he's good at playing villains. Like, he was really great in Rogue One as the villain in that movie. But uh, I think he he brings so much uh, light and humanity to even the darkest characters, you know, that he, he lends them a level of credibility that makes them more terrifying. Um, like as Krennic in in Rogue One, you do get that sense that he is just so frustrated about being middle management, uh, and he's so just annoyed at the way in which everyone disrespects him, even though he believes he has uh, accomplished this tremendous thing that no one believed would work. And then, as soon as it is proved to work, everyone tries to take it away from him and claim credit. Mm. Uh, and I like the way he plays that. Um, Animal Kingdom, which I think was the first thing I saw him in. Yeah, me uh, too. He is just the most terrifying human being for the entirety of that movie. Um, but he is, you know, he, it's a very kind of like human thing. His, the relationship he has with his family feels uh, authentic and mm-hmm. makes, you know, the things he does in the movie uh, even more horrifying because, like, like we're going back to the, the Adam Driver thing, like, there is something recognisable in that. It's not just, I don't know, like, Joe Pesci's good in Goodfellas, but there is something, at some point, it becomes, like, a little cartoonish and uh, heightened and uh, enters the the realm of, like, the mythic and the unreal. Mm-hmm. Whereas you don't really feel like that. Like, you always feel as if Ben Mendelsohn's characters have got, like, dirt under the nails. Mm. Yeah, here's a question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to crop up a lot when you talk about not only the actors we've talked about today, the male actors we've talked about today, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to narrow this down by, by gender. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something you see talked about with every kind of quote unquote defining actor of their generation. And that is intensity. Right. Do you think that that is kind of like the, the attribute to which that people think of when they think about the greatest actors of their generation? So when people talk about, oh, you know, James Dean or Paul Newman or young De Niro, young Hoffman, young young Pacino, young Sean Penn, it's those actors. All great rappers. All great. <laughs> all great rappers. They are all um, kind of brought together by their intensity. They're, Daniel Day-Lewis, mm. you know, they're, they're kind of like, uh, I guess, commitment uh, to the roles. Is that something that is, A, 
um, male specific, and B, is it outdated as a prism through which to judge good acting? Uh, I I think it has become gendered, mm-hmm. but there are actors about whom I could say they are actresses rather who are I say I could say are intense. Like I feel like uh, Michelle Williams can often be intense, like mm-hmm. her performance in Manchester by the Sea. Uh, the scene, the, you know, capital T, capital S, the scene that she has with Casey Affleck in the middle of that movie is uh, real kind of like raw and intense and it's mainly coming from her because of the way that the scene is structured as she is trying to say something to Casey Affleck and he is trying his best to deflect having to deal with the roiling emotions between them. Um but uh, it definitely is something, I, and I think this is this comes into a conversation that I know we've had uh, offline. I don't know if we've ever had it on the show about the way in which method acting is considered to be something of a male domain, mm-hmm. and certainly some actors um, in recent years who uh, have played DC villains. Uh, <laughs> take the notion of method acting to an extent where they are clearly doing it as a way of expressing their own masculinity by proving how extreme and twisted they are mm-hmm. and how that they can do thing. And in some respects, trying to take acting something that uh, historically is seen as I don't know, sissy maybe, or some sort of thing that isn't a traditional masculine job and trying to make it seem more masculine by mm-hmm. saying like, I lost loads of weight and I got really ripped and I, uh, you know, was an absolute twat to everyone on set for six months, you know, and that they try and do it that way. Uh, and so I do think that those aspects, you know, do make it, you know, kind of gendered. And I think the problem, I don't necessarily think that it's, intensity is an outdated way of judging acting from a critical perspective. I just think that it's um, the easiest and laziest way to judge if someone is putting in a lot of effort. Yeah. Because With I effort think, being the shortcut to someone saying it's a good performance because they went to yes. all that trouble. Yes, and I think that is a thing when people say if they're, they're, it's big on histrionics or they're kind of really contorting their face or their body to kind of really sell a point, it's more recognisable as acting. Mm. As opposed to someone giving a kind of a light, breezy performance. Like, you know, people would be more willing to say that, I don't know, like De Niro uh, is doing kind of like a big performance in Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, as opposed to like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Like, they're both acting, but one of them is deliberately trying to make it not seem like a performance and to affect a certain kind of breeziness to it mm. that is then kind of, like, denigrated and not considered to be as serious as what the other person is doing. Yeah, you'll see this when you go and see um, Paddington 2 tomorrow, okay. whenever you go and see it. When you see Hugh Grant in that movie, you realise just how good he is at a thing with Mm -hmm. that thing being light comedy. And how, for all the, you know, fake noses and, you know, living inside a bear carcass for for eight months to prepare for a role, ultimately, it's what you get out of it and the market leaves. And 
I think that comedic actors and actors who can demonstrate a light comic touch are, you know, every bit as uh, important and also incredibly undervalued when it comes to talking about these things because, you know, the big performances, the, the performances that Christian Bale might do, mm. they grab the attention because they are clearly, like I said, they've gone to a lot of trouble for that, haven't they? Yes, Uh and in terms of, uh, to get it back on Ben Mendelsohn, I think... Oh, yeah, that's who we were talking about, yeah. The, the thing that I think sets, sets him apart from a lot of those people who do put a lot of effort in is that um, his best performances often don't feel like he's putting in too much effort. Like, he's obviously mm-hmm. doing a performance and he's doing a really good job, but you don't you can't see the strings of him. I think of his work in something like The Place Beyond the Pines where he plays, I think, Ryan Gosling's kind of best friend moon uh, or roommate. And he's just kind of like, he just exists in the world with him and he feels like a real person and he's not kind of kind of doing like so much. You just think, oh yeah, this is like a credible, believable guy. Or even in something more um, stylized, like um, Killing Them Softly, uh, where he plays a very grimy character to the extent that I think at one point he spends a lot of the movie covered in dog shit. Mm-hmm. Um, like those, those are dark roles, uh, in a lot of, you know, he, he's in a lot of dark films and he plays a lot of kind of, uh, kind of cruel and bitter and evil characters. But like, you don't look at him and think, oh, like he's really kind of, uh, he, he's really over egging it. Like each one kind of feels natural and, and surprisingly light. Like he could really kind of like, you know, the, the camera stops rolling and he can kind of, like, shake it off and be like, all right, let's go get a drink. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's not always... He's not constantly the Joker. <laughs> he's not sending condoms to his uh, class... to his uh, castmates. Mm. And from your impression, I didn't know he was Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's also, he's also like, and especially in, in Animal Kingdom, um, mm. which is... I really would like to see that again now we're talking about it. Um, he... Um, turns in one of those performances which is very hard to do which uh in which you watch it not knowing at all what is going to happen next yes yeah which, which is a rare thing to pull off and you're talking you are talking joe pesci goodfellas um uh heath ledger in like the dark knight maybe uh, mm-hmm. a film a performance which makes you uneasy because within the confines of the narrative fiction you are watching which should is made no matter how good it is of well-trodden story beats that have a path that you can kind of guess you do not know what's going to happen scene to scene mm. when yeah. they're tom on hardy screen. and tom hardy and bronson is another yeah. one well, these where... are very intense performances yeah, but also with like the I think with Bronson because Tom Hardy is like it's so overtly theatrical mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter so much that he's doing this kind of really big intense performance. But I certainly remember I went to see it with um, uh, a friend of mine, and as the as soon as the movie ended, we both got up and ran out of the cinema, and we both said we just did not want to spend any more time <laughs> even remotely near the same room where Tom Hardy's character had been. Because um, it was just it was just so uh, unpleasant. And, oh, and that just reminded me also, um, Eric Banner in Chopper is another good example of that. Mm, where, yeah. where I think because so much of that performance is, is uh, leavened by humour, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he, that even though he is doing kind of 
he has all the accoutrements of a method performance where he's put on a shit ton of weight and he's gone to the effort of trying to look as much like Chopper as possible. Uh, it doesn't feel like a performance or like he's really straining. It just feels like, oh, yeah, they just took to this guy and just kind of filmed him doing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, doing horrible, horrible things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw in my last pick because we can't do this all day. We can, this is just a love-in. Um, yeah. Is someone who I've not really seen her in a lot, but she has huge potential to be mm. amazing in everything. Is Tessa Thompson? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so I first saw her in Creed, um, mm. and then uh, this year, or sorry, last year in Thor Ragnarok, and it's quite a step up uh, to go for that. But she is in that movie and could probably carry her own movie on her own. Which, given the fact that she hasn't got a particularly long CV. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think I first saw her in Dear White People. Oh, she's shit, the, yeah, she's in that as well, yeah. the lead in that. Uh, Creed was the, uh, I think, was the next thing I really noticed. And she's also really great in uh, Westworld. She has a few scenes in that, like she or she's in a few episodes, but it's not like a big part. But she is definitely someone who, whenever she's in something, I immediately am just, like, arrested uh, by her presence on screen because she is someone who is you know really captivating giving really great performances and and you know there is quite a big difference between the character she plays in creed and you know valkyrie mm-hmm. in thor ragnarok but both feel yeah they feel like like we've talked about like believable authentic they feel like real characters mm. um i've just looked her up and get this for a cv of what she's done in the last three years dear white people selma creed War on Everyone, Thor Ragnarok, Sorry to Bother You, the aforementioned one we're excited about, Annihilation, Ditto, and Avengers Infinity War. That is her CV for the last three years. What have you done, Ed? This? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we have. That's all we've done. Um, And, you know, she's wasting her life uh, with this acting (laughs) business. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I think she is a, a great shout for someone who has already kind of moved incredibly quickly through uh, the ranks of, of Hollywood and who uh, I'm really excited to see what else she does because she has been great in everything I've seen her in and you know what I've seen her in has already demonstrated that she has an absolutely fantastic range that is mm-hmm. you, know, you know you could take you take something uh, from you know the, the the gap between something like you know Selma and Thor Ragnarok is you know huge uh even though obviously, like Ava DuVernay is also within the Disney family through uh, a wrinkle in time. Mm. It also says here she's in Veronica Mars, which I'm sure is notable, but I've never seen it. So uh, I have. Uh, Aaliyah Shawcat was also in Veronica Mars. It's one of those shows which uh, is really good for just kind of like small roles for people who would eventually turn out to be fairly successful. Mm. Uh, I think Jessica Chastain is also in Veronica Mars as well in one episode. Interesting. She was also on my list, but I think. Uh, we talked a fair bit, so I think we should uh, move on to Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed this week and that uh, we think our you, our listeners, will enjoy. Now, we have a rare joint recommendation this week where we're both going to recommend the same thing. Matt, since you've seen it more recently than me, uh, why don't you start us off? Uh, yeah, we're going to recommend a film called Your Name, which is a Japanese animation that... Uh, has been kind of knocking around for a couple of years, but 
I when Ed, uh, that's you, uh, you published your best of the year list on your blog. I clicked on it and read it just to see what you disagreed with me about and what actually <laughs> didn't. What what you chose from the films we both liked from the podcast uh, list that we came up with that you would choose as your number one. And it was a total surprise to me that you picked your name, which wasn't even in, in consideration for us because neither of us had seen it and it didn't come out in the UK, which is kind of our loose kind of qualification period in last year. It actually came out in 2016. Um, but it came out in America in 2017 and thus made a lot of year-end lists uh, this year. It is Directed by uh, Makoto Shinkai, uh, who has... I'm not a big expert on Japanese animation, but he's done... He's been around a, a while. Um, mm-hmm. I've not seen any of his previous features. But it is... It's very hard to talk about without giving too much away, but it is mm-hmm. obs- kind of ostensibly a body swap comedy, drama, romantic film that's a bit like Sliding Doors but mm. good <laughs> with yes. lots of J-pop in it, but also will probably make you cry about three times. Mm. Yep. That's, that's about the size of it. It's a movie that, uh, you know, I, I watched it because I'd seen it crop up on a lot of people's best of lists lists. And I ended up like, I ended up having to, I ended up seeing it after we had submitted our ballots for our top 10, which is why it wasn't on mine, uh, initially. Mm-hmm. And, like a lot of people have said, oh, you know, this is really great, really great. I knew that it had been a huge commercial success, particularly in Japan. Mm. And so I thought, okay, I, I'll, I'll give this a watch. And I'd say for the first like 20 minutes or so, I thought, oh, this is like a really kind of funny, charming uh, body swap comedy. Uh, okay, like, you know, I'm really enjoying it. And then about halfway through, I was like, oh man, I'm really invested in this now. And things are going <laughs> very badly uh, for these characters that I really want good things for. And by the last 10 minutes, I was on the verge of just like standing up in my flat and just jumping up and down and screaming at the characters to figure something out so that they could get a kind of a good resolution. And uh, if you had told me that like that would be the journey that I was going to go on over the course of 90 minutes before I started watching it or during that first like 20 minutes, I honestly wouldn't have believed you. But I think... The, the fact that it did take me on that journey and it was really kind of like transportive in that way. Uh, that is, you know, that's everything I look for in a movie. Uh, and that's, that's why it ended up being like, uh, my, my number one of the year. Yeah. I, I had a very similar journey and the, the first is the first half an hour is kind of like knockabout and it's fun and it's like a caper. Mm-hmm. And then after about 45 minutes, I was like, if one of these characters dies, so help me, I'm going to throw my, <laughs> my TV out the window. <laughs> Um, that was where I ended up. And by the end, it was like, I turned to my wife and we were like, that was actually magical, uh, mm. that film. And um, it's on Amazon Prime, pretty sure, in the, definitely in the UK, whether it's in the US or not, I'm not sure. But it is 100% worth your, like, two hours of your time. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's absolutely a wonderful, wonderful movie. Thank you all for listening to us this week. If you enjoyed the show, then please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, all the usual, usual places. Please rate and review us and uh, recommend us to your friends. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs>